Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks, count them, to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things to that end. I sometimes talk about listeners' first pages on the show, sometimes I talk about my own writing practice and sometimes, in fact, often... I get other writers, authors, poets, playwrights, people from the publishing world and sometimes psychologists onto the show to talk about creating books and creating stories. And that's what I'm doing on today's show. My guest on today's episode of the podcast is the poet and author Hannah Jane Walker. Um, She talks a little bit about her background in how she got into writing uh, poetry and performance poetry. We were on the performance poetry scene or the poetry, live poetry scene, I suppose, um, at the same time. Uh, but also, her she's got a new book out uh, called Sensitive about this idea of sensitivity or being oversensitive being something that's pathologized in our society and her her experiences of being told that she was too sensitive or oversensitive or stop being so sensitive and she sort of did an exploration of sensitivity in her own life and in her family's life and how it's valued or not in society and she went to speak to some researchers and she just basically looked into it and uh, has written this really interesting uh, very kind of warm but also provocative uh, book where she asks if there are upsides to sensitivity and uh, whether the problems that it seems to pose are in, in some ways cultural and society level problems that we have to deal with. And look, I happen to suspect that many writers experience interesting issues around feeling like they might be too sensitive that they might sometimes worry too much about how other people see them or sometimes that sensitivity is about like we and we talk about this in the show and I don't want to preempt it too much but about like kind of like levels of processing and being highly sensitive to noise or to lights or sometimes it's an empathic thing but sometimes it's just like sounds you can't control and or smells or things like that and so obviously there is some crossover with things like autism as well and we discuss all that but we also discuss her growing up and writing poetry we also talk about writing non-fiction and the craft of it and this idea that I love that we talk about about having a having a question that you just kind of push against. I think chatting this chat with Hannah is actually really inspiring. I certainly found talking to Hannah really inspiring. Like, it was just really nice. It's, you know, like, there's just a relief, like, hearing someone voice having faced and dealt with some of the same worries and problems that you have, and you just, like, feel slightly less crazy. That was nice. But also, I think Hannah's very positive about lots of these things. And 
just gives some really interesting alternative perspectives like I guess like different pairs of glasses that you can put on and say what if we look at it instead of making this set of assumptions what if we bring this set of assumptions to it and I, I think that's just really fun and we laughed a lot and uh, the conversation goes quite long because we were just uh, just enjoying chatting um, and you'll hear actually that we got near to the end of the interview and I, I began the wrap-up and then we just talked a bit more about social media and then we ended um, and that's really nice so I've put a link to Hannah's new book sensitive in the show notes of today's episode but if you also if you just search Hannah Jane Walker and sensitive you'll find it um, but I've put a link if you'd like to uh, get it also if you enjoyed today's episode and you want to support the podcast you can click the link to my coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash tim claire drop me a few beans it helps me keep the lights on it helps me pay my hosting costs thank you to everyone who's been so generous as to continue to you know support the show in like these little ways because they all add up like i know it sort of feels like it's not going to make a difference here and there but the fact is that loads of listeners um have thought to just you know help support that you know toss it a, a few quid into the bucket and it just it adds up and allows me to do this uh continually and i just really really appreciate it so thank you there's a link in the show notes there which are just the bits underneath today's episode in whatever podcatching app you use if you like the podcast please do subscribe and you know leave a review on itunes or subscribe on soundcloud that's all just like really handy for making sure that when i keep slightly eccentric upload schedules you you get the episodes thanks for that and finally there is a link in today's show notes to my new to pre-ordering my new book coward why we get anxious and what we can do about it which is you know obviously um you can understand why I was interested to talk to Hannah because there's there are some areas in which uh, like our interests intersect and I, I, I actually really enjoyed hearing Hannah talk about the process of when you're researching a book and you're interested in a subject that <laughs> it's rare that there's just like someone sitting around who's like, I am the professor of anxiety or I am the professor of sensitivity or whatever your interest is. The topic of your book, it's, it's likely that there's just someone with that job title who spent their life like in a tower sort of tabulating all the things you know. So what you end up doing is going to people in loads of different fields, loads of disparate fields that might bump up against what you're interested in and go, OK, so you work in this area. How might that relate or what that might that tell us about the thing I'm writing a book about? And that's always really fun as well, because you end up getting to speak to this really fascinating cross-section of people but my book uh you can pre-order it and i if you just like search for coward and uh story smith books are the link that i'm using in the uk where you can pre-order and they're a independent bookshop and if you pre-order i'll sign the books so um you'll get a signed copy on release and they if you email them they can do international sales as well and, it, and the money goes to an independent bookshop. That's it. That's it. All of those things, you know, buying Hannah's book, um, dropping me, sir, dropping the show some dollar through 
the coffee page and uh, pre-ordering my book are all wonderful ways that you can support the show and support me. I hope you're doing really well. I'm not going to do it, uh, any life updates in this show. At some point, I'm going to just do a little uh, writing ramble episode where I talk and we can catch up. But because this is a, a thoroughgoing, uh, rollicking conversation, I'd just like to sort of step aside and, 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 and get into it. I really hope you enjoy it because I enjoyed this one. Um, and if you enjoy it, share it with people because, uh, that you might think enjoy it too. That's it. Okay. Um, I hope you're well and I hope your writing's going well. And if it's not, maybe put aside five, ten minutes today of just a bit of free writing doodle something fun take a sentence for a walk and see what you come up with uh, because it only takes those tiny little interventions to start just changing the story in your head and turning things around so you start feeling less like someone who is failing to write and more like someone who is playing and experimenting and planting seed in your little writing allotment and seeing what grows that's what it's all about really in the end is treating yourself with love and having fun and from that good stuff appears which reminds me me and Hannah also talk about Hannah talks very sort of wisely and interestingly about the relationship between your responsibility to yourself as a writer and your writing practice and your responsibility to the audience as well so that's another thing to look out for and look forward to I'm going to step aside now please enjoy my chat with Hannah Jane Walker so the first thing I wanted to ask is when is the first time that you can remember sort of realising or thinking that words and maybe stories were important? Um, yeah, stories when my dad, like I was quite a outsidery kid, not in the cool way, just in a not really belonging to any group or having any real friends way and my dad would try and do like extracurricular activities with us on a Saturday because I'm from quite a big family and so he'd take me and my next sister down off to do stuff on a Saturday and some of that was like physical activity which I was all right at but didn't love but my next sister down did but what I really loved was when he took us to the library for the first time in a little village that I grew up in a tiny little library and um I remember, I really viscerally remember, like in my body, I can remember this feeling of like really big butterflies in my stomach. And I remember looking at all the books and, and think, and I remember thinking, I'm, but I, I don't know if I have the time to read all of these. Like, <laughs> I'm getting really panicked and I still get that feeling when I go into a bookshop now of like, oh, I can't choose, I, I want them all, like... It's, it's a sort of excited panic. It's not a bad panic. I just get really like over, uh, overexcited and overstimulated. And so that's the first time I can remember being really excited about stories. And the librarian it sounds like something out of Matilda. It wasn't. I wasn't a genius kid or anything. But the librarian, I think, noticed that I was particularly excited. And I think the book limit was like nine or something. And she let me take home. I think my dad really exaggerates it. I think it, he said it was like 32. But I think mm. it was actually like... 12 you know like or something like that so that's the first time I was really excited about stories um but I don't remember being excited about writing or being aware that oh yeah maybe I do I, I remember I had a notebook in my bedroom it was a special notebook that had been given to me on my birthday by somebody and uh 
I remember really secretly going up to my bedroom you know, as a teenager and I would write stuff down um, that I now understand is poetry, <laughs> but I didn't know what it was at the time <laughs> because it didn't resemble any of the poetry I was reading, which was through school. And I, to be quite honest, thought it meant that there was something very wrong with me. Really? <laughs> yeah, because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing and I hid it with the like ferocity of like a cat guarding or like a mouse kill that they've brought in. Like I was like, if people came around the house, I'd get really jumpy and mum would be like, oh, so-and-so's coming around. And I would think, oh my God, where am I going to hide the notebook? <laughs> like, I would like really plan where it was going to go. Like if like I had to give up my bedroom for a guest staying, an aunt and uncle or something, like I would put loads of thought into like, what is the least likely place? that this absolutely cannot be found. Um, wow. So those are my earliest memories of writing. I mean, I've got a lot more to say about that. I just don't know if it's... Well, I just want to... I, I, can you get... Can, I mean, what, what was the kind of content of what you were writing down in, <laughs> in those notebooks? I mean, was it like autobiographical? Were you playing with words? Did it seem like song lyrics? Like what kind of thing was going into those notebooks do you remember uh yeah so I'd write down song lyrics a lot when I was a really little I used to whenever friends came around my house I mean no wonder I didn't have that many friends to be honest like my favorite games play with them <laughs> my, my tape player was I'd have like now 90s tapes and I'd like go let's write down all the words and they'd be like uh okay I'll be like here's a piece of <laughs> here's a piece of paper and I would um give them a pen and play a phrase and be like, okay, what do you think they just said? And then we'd write down the words and then we'd get all the words and I'd be like, now let's sing it together. And so like a lot of the time it was song lyrics, I was writing down very lyric based songs, people like Tasman Archer. Don't know if many people will remember who Tasman Archer is. Uh, that's rude to Tasman Archer, isn't it? Did, um, did, <laughs> wait, did she, did, so I'm going to get this wrong now. She, no, I'm going to, I feel like I, I want to take a run at Tasman Archer and I'm going to embarrass myself. What was her, what was her most famous song? She, she wrote a song called Sleeping. Yes, that was the one I was going to say. <laughs> and it was like, you, I, I was you right. The, yeah, it was like, I blame you for the moonlit stars or something, for the moon and sky, for the, Something and I just the eagle's thinking, eye that the for the dream the that died. The eagle's eye, the dream that died. And I just remember thinking that's like the most profound, beautiful thing I've ever heard. I think I was about ten then, eleven maybe. It's my first tape I ever bought. Maybe I was younger. Uh, so we'd do that, and that was genuinely my favourite game to play. And then it progressed a little bit when I was maybe like twelve, thirteen, to sort of what I now realise is <laughs> a very bad version of like Emily Dickinson style poetry. So it's like really cryptic words strung together that I absolutely knew what they meant, <laughs> I think. But nobody, I don't know why I bothered hiding it. No one would have understood what it meant. Like, cause it wasn't really sentences. <laughs> it was like, it was about like the sinew. I was just, I think I was playing with what words what happened to words when you put them next to each other? But I didn't know, didn't think, oh, this is a poem about that. And that's still something I have to deal with when I write. Do you know what I mean? I have to go like, what's this about, Hannah? Because sometimes I just like mucking about. And it's not very conscious. It's very, um, it's done like under the thinking radar somehow. I, I, it's just... 
that I know, do you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. I, I it makes me think of. Um, I know I bang on about him all the time, but the author Steve Aylett said that like there's an energy released, a kind of fizzing energy when you put two words together that have never been next to each other before. Yeah, like like they just start sort of, they just sort of start buzzing. Like when mm-hmm. when they don't when those two words don't normally sit next to each other, and yeah. and it's a bit like the our mutual friend the poet Ross Sutherland talks about mm. the uh, beat poets and Ginsberg's eyeball kick technique of like mm. this idea that painters using very contrasting colours. So when your eye part and putting them next to each other, and when the eye passes between one colour and the other there's like a little surprise and so you're talking mm. about just like putting words together because maybe they contrast or maybe they feel nice together and they but it's just the feeling of the the, the two words when they're combined right yeah, without yeah, necessarily yeah. knowing what they mean or anything they just kind of they have a nice mouth feel they do and then that coupled with like that kind of whole Alanis Morissette culture that came through at a particular time of like female, <laughs> female expressive singer, singer songwriters who, you know, I, I still listen to that genre of music predominantly. Uh, I think I was really taken with that idea and identity. I found it really exciting. Um, but I really thought, and then and then I grew to love essay writing. Like I remember at A levels, everyone going, "Oh God, write an essay about like Keizo Shiguru or Toni Morrison or Emily Dickinson." And I remember being like, "Yeah, God, it's awful, isn't it?" And then actually being th- absolutely thrilled, like beyond thrilled, like thinking, "I'm alive! <laughs> I love this so much! I love this so much!" And I thought I had to hide that I loved it. <laughs> Why so, what did you what did you enjoy about it? What did you love about it? Being able to like the being given a question that you then would be pushing your weight against. Like and not knowing where you were going to go, like writing to just explore. Like I loved it and I used to stay up. I'd start at like two o'clock in the morning, which drove my parents absolutely nuts. And I used to light candles in my bedroom and my dad's got this real fire terror and he'd come in systematically about every 40 minutes and blow the candle out and be like, stop writing, (laughs) go to bed. I'd be like, I, and then I'd secretly light the candle again and get back out of bed and then be knackered at school. Um, But I just loved that that space it felt like and I genuinely remember thinking and this is like the brilliance of youth I remember writing an essay freehand like before writing essays on laptops and stuff and thinking I don't think anyone's ever had this thought before (laughs) (laughs) and I was like this is brilliant this is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it was all right. I got good grades, but it wasn't brilliant. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, but and it, then is, my te- it is brilliant that you're enjoying it, right? Like, I, I think I hear that yeah. now. And I I have a kind of... Because when you're saying oh, you, you're pushing your weight against the question and you don't know where it's going to go, when you said that, I had like a pang of fear. And I think it reflects sort of badly <laughs> on being an adult because I was like, but what if you don't... No, like what if you get it wrong like i yeah, it's yeah. and that's kind of i think that's really sad in a way that 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 i that that's my attitude to some things now whereas it no, sounds like I you're think, kind of exploring you know and that's what yeah, but that went badly wrong for me at one point and exactly and that was what i thought 
writing was, which obviously it is in many ways. But then I did that in my English A-level and I did really well in like four of, I think there's four papers. I can't remember. Do you remember you did English, didn't you? I think it was like four modules, you four papers you wrote yeah. or something like that. And I did really well, like really high A's on three of them. And then one of them, which was a Pinter essay, I completely failed. <laughs> they completely failed me. They were like, no, this is, this is ungrateful. It was a U. And what? so I, and then, so it lowered my whole grade to a B. And I was absolutely beyond devastated, like, and no one knew why I was devastated because I hadn't really told anyone how much I loved English and how much I loved literature. So everyone was like, why it's going, what's that with her? This, what's going on? I was absolutely gutted with a B, which is ridiculous because obviously a B is great. But so much so, I took a year out. I didn't go straight onto university. I worked in a cafe and I retook my English paper. And my English teacher came and tutored me at my house. She's a brilliant lady. I met her for a drink the other day, Mrs. Smith. And I made sure that I got an A. And it was because I'd gone completely... I'd just been so excited in following the question that I'd followed it in completely the wrong direction. Like I had no real sense of like there being someone on the other end of that, like there is with a reader of a book or poetry or play. I'd never occurred to me that you needed to be writing the right thing for them. I'd just written the right thing for me <laughs> this is a really that's oh, I'm so glad you brought this up Hannah because it seems to me to get to that kind of like heart of so many things I, I want to talk about with you and so let's move on a little bit I'm just going to put a pin in that because I think that's a really great observation the kind of difference between you know yeah. we think about the quality of our experience as writers and and but there's someone on the other end of the phone and we and <laughs> yeah. how do we m- m- mediate between those two needs um and mm. so when did you sort of start i guess we you know i guess you were writing for yourself and you're doing some stuff that was a bit like poetry and some stuff that was kind of like non-fiction or essay style when did you start i guess kind of creating for an audience mm. Well, I think there's a very definite difference between when I was actually doing stuff for an audience and putting myself out there and then when I realised what I hope I've learnt. Well, I'm sure there's people who think I haven't yet, but I hope I'm in the process of learning to do better, uh, which is where you really think about them more. And uh, so, yeah, I made shows and was gigging on some of the overlapping circuits that you were gigging on. Um, and yeah, I wasn't necessarily thinking about, I didn't even know what a poem was doing, if you know what I mean. I'd just be like, well, here's a poem. And if someone said to me, what's it, what does it do? I just wouldn't have had an answer for that. I'd be like, I don't know. It's just, it is the thing that is here. <laughs> um, so and how, I did how were you gauging if it time. was sort of successful or not maybe successful is a weird criteria I don't know if that's the one you were using but you know how how were you when you were gigging and stuff how are you going oh this is this is a poem that I really like or that's done really well and this is not one that has not worked quite as I wanted like yeah yeah. you can hear it you can hear it in the room can't you you can hear it in their response and it's really tempting for example I'm sure you've encountered this when an audience is quiet like it's really easy in a gig, isn't it, to be like, well, success means they laughed. 
because I can hear that or I can see a really visible reaction. And so for a while I was like, oh, that's what I need to do because that's what success means. And so I tried to do that and I'm not naturally very funny particularly. And so like that was a really bad fit for me. And I was like trying really hard to be like, I just really want to give you what you want. And they were like, what are you doing? And then it took me a while to go like, oh, I need to be a slightly different version of me and be comfortable doing that. And so I just... um would try stuff out and sort of, you can sort of hear it, I think, in the room about whether something's landed or not. And then you can tell by whether people come and talk to you or, um, you know, poets that you're regularly gigging with will say like, oh, I think that really works. It will give you, well, so generous when someone offers you that reflection. I can remember Ross doing that to me at Latitude once. And I was like, about a poem that I did that I, that I really wasn't sure about. And he was like, that really works. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. That's so hugely valuable, isn't it? When someone offers you that. Um, you've done that for me in the past as well, like peer peer offerings, um, having people that you you know it's n- not really in their interest to, t- well, maybe it is, but like it's not really in their interest to tell you something doesn't work if it doesn't, you know, works if it doesn't work. Um, but I remember being running a workshop and someone saying, you know there's often similar questions I'm sure you've encountered this in workshops and one of the questions that often comes up is how can when can you say that you are a poet which is a really amorphous question and answer because you know (laughs) there's a million ones of ways of looking at like what a poet is and I said an answer that I was like oh I didn't know I thought that but that's what I've been trying to do which was when you, I think, <laughs> it's when you care more about the reader or the listener's experience than you care about the honesty and the accuracy of the thoughts, language and feelings or, or experience which have gone into the machine. So it's when you care more about the receiver end than I think you care about this end, I think. Does that make any sense? It, it makes total sense. I suppose, like... That's not the the romantic idea is like it's when you give yourself totally to the page and <laughs> uh, uh, and you're inspired and the words flow out of you. That's the the idea. And I feel like that's the, you know, saying that it's like when you completely are honest or when you completely make yourself vulnerable or all sorts of things that are kind of focused on the writing end of it. Um or when I you're feel willing that to you murder get... your darlings, when you're willing to go, yeah, I love that. I love that piece, but it doesn't do the job, does it? No. Yeah, but like, no, I, but I think, but no, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think there's like lots of answers you could give that would get lots of approval that would be about kind of like, oh, it's like when you completely give yourself to the piece that maybe aren't as true as what you're saying, which is like, maybe not what every audience wants to hear, which is like, well, sometimes I'm mm. not saying quite what I wanted to say because I feel like you're not ready for that yet. Or I just need to step in and mediate it somehow because, yeah. like, actually some of us as humans are, some of us are, like, a bit weird in a way that isn't always completely palatable to an audience and we just have to step in and do a little bit of... Translation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, do you, does that is that fair or I don't know whether that makes sense, what I'm trying to say, but... No, it does, it does, it does. It's like, And it's also, like, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to... What are, you, what are you using that space for? I've started thinking a lot recently, like, when we do a gig, what is the, what are we using that for? Like, it's a privilege, isn't it? I've, I remember 
You were in that workshop, weren't you, with Roger Robinson? And he was like... No, I wasn't. No, you no. weren't? It was a workshop and he was like, you really need to think about, you know, what you're using that space for and da 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 And I remember putting my hand up. I was like, really scared to ask a question. There's only like five of us in the room, I think. And I was like, what gives someone the right to stand up and ask people for that space? And he was like, exactly. And I was like, no, but I need an answer to that. I, I felt like he, had, <laughs> <laughs> he was like, no, exactly. That's the answer. And I was like, uh, and I really <laughs> found that really problematic for a long time. Like, why am I getting you to listen to me? What am I doing with you? For instance, like Selena Godden, who is an amazing poet. She does such interesting, like she's really entertaining. She gets the audience to laugh. They're really with her, like she's really performative and she's really using that space to kind of explore a lot of the sinewy stuff about like love and activism and, and that's her specific thing. I'm not saying we should all be doing that, but like, I think she's really thought about what she's using that space for and is not going out there and being like, right now I'm going to make that really dry. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like she's doing it in a way which is entertaining and active. Uh, and I've always been like, what? I don't know what I am. <laughs> I don't know what I'm offering. Um, and that's really made me hesitate a lot of the time. But I also just personally get a lot out of doing it. So sometimes just going in gigging is just because I want to. Like, because I get a lot out of it personally. Uh, and I, I and I think, like, as an audience member, I obviously, like, I, I don't go to shows to see something, just to see a performer having a nice time <laughs> you know, I'm not like oh they're obviously living their best life up there that's 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 enough for me <laughs> no exactly but it exactly. is quite nice when you see that they're when the person who is performing I do often maybe this is just me but I do often relax when I feel like they are not they they don't need something specific out of me when when you see someone on stage mm -hmm. who's kind of like only gonna be okay if the audience acts in reacts in a specific way mm -hmm. um so someone I, i've always felt like very comfortable as an audience member of and also if i'm going on after them is like francesca beard as somebody I who knew just you were gonna say francesca did you beard. I, yeah, well, I, I think like, that's a great compliment to her that i hope yeah. that like uh just someone who is very She's very resilient, right? Yeah, very, I mean, I think we've probably also seen her in sort of like in in, 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 in situations where the prevailing wind was not behind her um, yeah. and, and she's sort of still soldiered on. And I always admire that in a performer who can sort of make mm. the best out of a tricky gig and then have a good gig when the audience are on side as well. But um, who kind of is prepared to be present in the room. Then maybe that sounds, I don't know. That, no, that it's a bit like vague. party behaviour. It's a bit like being at a party, isn't it? Like, you know, there's some people who are just really able to just be there. Um, my challenge has always been like, I love being there. Like I love people. I love engaging with people. But the reason why I took up smoking, for example, um, which I don't mainly do anymore, is because I loved being there and needed to find a way to continually get out of the room and be able to come back in again because I could do it as long as like I had some time where I was very definitely doing the opposite but you need but you felt like you needed a social alibi to leave the room because it would have been weird just to 
walk yeah. out without a piece of theatre accompanying it. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, oh, got to go and have a cigarette. Oh, sorry. So socially awkward, isn't it? Like, I loved it when they made smoking outside. Like, I was like, brilliant. I get to leave the room whenever <laughs> I want. Everyone was complaining about it. I was like, oh, that's great. Can, can yeah. we... T- I think that seems like that feeling of sort of... Uh, social hypervigilance might be a nice segue into talking about the subject of your new book uh Mm. which has just come out congratulations thank you congratulations on your book too well yeah thanks um i i i want to just i wonder if you could talk a little bit your book's called sensitive and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about um well, can I let you do not the pitch because that's too much cheesy <laughs> pressure, but can you just sort of explain what to you the book is about and what you were trying to do with it before we kind of dive into the subject matter? Yeah, sure. Um, you mean describe the form or describe what it's about? Describe what, what it's about. You know, like what, um, what, what's the book, what's sensitive about? Well, yeah, so it's called Sensitive, The Power of Feeling in a World That Doesn't, and it is about sensitivity and... I basically am very, very sensitive, have been my whole life, and I've always thought that was a massive, massive problem, like something that I had to, like, figure out how to mutate in order to be successful or okay in the world. I was like, deep, deep, a lot of shame attached to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, a lot Mm. of, like, oh, God, I seem to be experiencing this. These other people seem to be experiencing that differently and instead of going oh well we're all different I would go that must mean I'm the failure here Hmm. (laughs) um and that's just been my way of navigating the world don't think I'm special in that I think you know never thought I was the only one but always thought well other people who are experiencing the world like that too that's also a problem for them and went through I don't know if I'll talk you through like the evolution process of it, but basically there was a, a very natural evolution process of, for this book of like how it came about, which I'll, I suppose I'll come back to in a second. But yeah, I was very interested in this idea that we have this, this idea that sensitivity is something that's weak and problematic. And I've been interested in that for quite a long time. It didn't occur to me to make something about it until I became a parent and realised that my wonderful daughter is obviously very much herself, but is also made of some of the same genetic and nurture material that I am, um, and of my partner as well. And that she was displaying a lot, I mean, a lot of behaviors which were very reminiscent of stories I've been told by my mum about my childhood and things that I felt really strong shame around. And I found myself trying to parent her out of them, telling her she needed to toughen up, telling her that she needed to participate in things in a particular way, essentially shaming her. And I mean, there's some people in the world who might think that's great parenting, but I don't think that's great parenting. And I was like, I'm being, I'm not, this is not as loving as it could be as a parent. And I was like, I don't know how to fix that. And I went into a bit of a flat panic about it. And started therapy about it because obviously that's a really proactive way to 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 manage some of that stuff and I've been doing that for a long time and doing a lot of reframing work and like all of that stuff but also 
was that I think there's a bigger question in here, which is the question of like how valuable if, if if I'm to like reframe sensitivity as something that's not a massive problem, like I need a story that goes with that about like, well, what is its value then? And like generally the story that I could find was like, oh, because sensitivity's nice. And I was like, oh, I don't that's not enough for me. I want more than that. And so that's what led me to writing the book, basically, because I wanted to know the answer to the question, like, what is sensitivity for? Like, what's it valuable for? Because I want to be able to offer my kid, my kid a better story, and selfishly for me as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I stand to benefit from that story. And we're not the only humans who are experiencing the world in that way. But broader than that, broader than the people who are very sensitive, I think that, we're in a particular moment in time. I think the pandemic made a lot of people feel very heightened in their vulnerability and in all sorts of ways. And I think we're facing some really interesting questions about how we, how the hell we get out of some of the like dead ends we found ourselves in facing things like the economy, the environment, like all sorts of massive problems. And I sort of had this feeling that like since the value of sensitivity we, was useful in helping figure some of those things out. So it's a kind of two-pronged story, really, about like what do you do with a what do you do with a story of sensitivity if you, in yourself if you think it's weak? Like how do you turn that into something positive? How do you find yourself be of use in the world? Like what's that story that you internally tell yourself? And also, what's the story we're all living in? Like what's the water? Like and I think the water that we're all swimming in is like to survive you must like achieve over another human being it's about like individual success and individual competition and that's the system we're in and i think that that system with those values in it is responsible for a huge amount of stuff that we let ourselves get away, we let ourselves get away with collectively all of us me too um yeah sorry that's probably far too much information i love it. i oh, i knew you were going to say that that's my happiest thing <laughs> is like every time someone I, I say this almost every episode to a guest <laughs> Someone gives a really good thorough answer, but also where they're being honest and thinking through it. And without fail, they will end it with, I'm sorry, I uh, waffled a bit there. And it's always when they've just given a really sort of like good, every time it happened last episode, exactly the same thing. I don't know what it is about humans that make them apologise when they give good thorough answers every time. I'm I'm talking to you. I I, I solicited the question. <laughs> you didn't like walk on in, in on me trying to like go to the loo and start saying, "Can I tell you a bit about my book?" Like I'm I'm asking you. This is a format. It's okay. So I want to just. I, I this is going to sound like a very very <laughs> elemental question, but I yes. do want to. I think it's just worth doing before we move on, just so mm. I make sure that I'm whistling from the same hymn sheet. Do you have a working definition? of what sensitivity is. Mm. So I don't, but another person who's written another book does. I'm just telling you a bit of my book here under my desk that talks about that. And yeah, so Dr. Elaine Aaron, who is an American psychologist and author, she wrote a book called The Highly Sensitive Person in, in 1996. And in it, she defines this, trait rather and it's a type of person which is the highly sensitive person and 
she did loads of research into it um, and she found that it is a, is a trait and it's found in much higher concentration amongst a specific proportion of the population and that it's a trait that can be found in human, like across all species, basically. I think it was like found in fish and giraffes and all sorts of things, cats. <laughs> like, um, in fact, we've just realised we've probably got a highly sensitive cat at home. Hmm. Um, um, it's very interesting watching the difference between, between the two cats. Um, and she breaks it down into an acronym, which is something, which is DOES, which stands for D, is means depth of processing, which is obviously something you can measure. Uh, o is overstimulation. E is emotional intensity, responsiveness and empathy. And S is sensitive to subtleties. And her book has a sort of series of self-reflective statements that you can answer in order to like assess whether you are highly sensitive um, and so that book exists um, but then I was very interested in that one of the other people that I interviewed a psychologist at Queen Mary University of London I think is the right title which is Professor Michael Pluse and he said what well, we are finding now that it's more nuanced than that it's not just this type of person that's highly sensitive and then people who are not that it's like a scale like a spectrum like anything that you're measuring really and that there's sort of you can be you can be anywhere along that scale and he's very careful and I think this is really important that he doesn't phrase it as like that being good or sensitivity is not good or bad it's not like oh if you're in the sensitivity club that makes you better than all other humans it just means that that's what you are like it doesn't have any value that we we're the ones that are attached value to that like innately as a trait it doesn't have value attached to it and dr elaine aaron's research is very interesting in that she found that it was genetic that it's found equally amongst men and women although women are more likely to have a, a social story which says that sensitivity is more acceptable for their for their you know for their for their gender um and that it's found in introverts and extroverts although slightly more found in introverts and like i'd place myself more on like an extrovert end of scale like i love people love talking to people i collect i talk to anyone uh but that quite often somebody who's highly sensitive finds themselves um the overlapping point with sort of autism is 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 the sensory stuff in to do with like finding yeah the physical variables of an environment particularly affecting and that won't be the same for everyone for some people that might be smell for some people that might be touch for some people that might be light like whatever taste um yeah so that's the that's the explanation when, when you felt that you were oversensitive when you were getting that message from the world and the people around you um what were the thing? How did you try to deal with that? What were the things you were trying to do to make yourself sort of, when you felt that that was something bad that you needed to work on or change? Mm. What were the signs? What what did I do as to like? Yeah, yeah. Well, how did how like so 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 when you were feeling like you were oversensitive, how did you try to, you know, like were there things you tried to do to make yourself less sensitive? How were you trying to deal with it before you started mm. feeling that it was something that I wanted uh, to do with something about? Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I just ate food. Like, and, you know, as a consequence, I've had a real problem with my weight <laughs> my, my whole life, to be totally honest. Um, and also, I 
would try I would have I'd need a lot of reassurance from partners and really close friends do you know what I mean I'd like be like you need to help me be okay like I'd lean on them in ways that out this side of my adult life I just look at and go god I wow I don't really know who that is now which obviously is part of me but it's been sort of a big growing up thing I, I think um so yeah I'd need a lot of comfort from relationships and food uh, and I I think that's why I was writing a lot of the time as well. I was trying to talk to myself, like soothe myself, tell myself that it's okay somehow, that this is okay. Like it just all felt very raw, really raw for a very long time. And that all sounds like, I mean, I I, I sort of both, you know, I'm sort of feeling a, a really sort of, feel for you as as you're saying that and also I kind of relate to it a lot as well and I wondered you know you can understand I guess on the face of it people hearing that and getting the impression that sensitivity is only a negative thing because it seems to have made you experience sort of your emotions more acutely in ways that I was distressed yeah there was a lot of distress and so could you talk about maybe the ways in which you've sort of come to understand it being maybe a bit more nuanced than that and it's not just it's not Mm. purely a liability right yeah no well that's what I wanted to find out in the book I was like I don't have this story and like I asked around friends family I was like what's the better story and everyone would be like I don't know so I was like okay that's why I'm gonna write this book and so in each chapter I interview a different specialist and sort of say well in your work tell me tell me where your work like encounters that and it's, it was quite interesting to research because it's not like in general there's like an, an abundance of people who go I research sensitivity like there's people whose work butts up against the frontier of where like sensitivity starts to like come in as a variable um I mean there are neuroscientists who specifically are researching sensitivity um but more broadly than that I had to sort of like really dig about to find people's work who like really overlap with that and and I wanted to help gather those bits of of better story and so really the main threads that came through that I found through the book was that sensitivity the the trait of sensitivity is in us as a species because it's like an alarm system that is there to signify unfavorable conditions for the rest of the population that it's like a sort of fire alarm, which is that that if it starts beeping, you're like, oh, I probably need to, I probably need to do something about that. But what I think is interesting with that is I don't think we do listen to those fire alarm beeps. I think we go, well, it's just you, mate. Like, you're the problem. I don't think we go, oh, is this useful for us? I think we just go, well, weirdo like it's having hmm. a hard it's having a hard time over here off you go that i think we're getting better at that but i think that's generally like what we do so it is literally there as a sort of litmus test for good conditions 
which if you think about it, it's like hugely valuable to us, right? In terms of how figuring out how we go forwards as a species, that we have this group of people who like, because we don't know how to do some of the stuff we've got to figure out for the future, right? Like, anyone who says they do is just lying. It's spin. Like some people have got some little crumbs of ideas about how we figure out how we go forwards, but everyone is just going, I don't know. Like, I don't know. How do we do that? Um, and I think probably having a group of people who are the variable <laughs> where you go, Oh, like as we go maybe this way who go Ooh, not sure that's quite useful like that's a useful thing to have in us um i'm not saying we should put them in like cages and set fire to them and be like how does that feel because obviously that's not good but um so it's yeah responsiveness so because people who are very highly sensitive their their sort of trait is described as being like they notice things that other people might not so it's very useful to us to have a group of people who notice things that other people might not. They're also really good at looking at like the real micro detail and the macro picture of how information and emotional relationships fit together. And that's useful to us because that tells us something about collective well-being, right? Like that's a sort of mapping skill with an emotional element to it that you can go oh it's like to do with like tessellating different kinds of information like that's that's really useful also empathy and care like people who have this trait are much more likely to be drawn to traits that have care somewhere in the in the job like in a sort of search to offer that to other people to try and resolve that for other people so like social workers teachers nurses doctors sometimes lawyers people are trying to go like not always, but like, how, how do I change this thing for this other person? And, you know, we saw in the pandemic, didn't we? We had that moment where we were like, oh, look, the people who are carrying us right now are like teachers, nurses, care home workers. And we were all like, I think collectively everyone was like, oh, right right that's incredibly useful and then we came out of the pandemic and the economy you know became the more important thing and I'm not saying the economy is not important it is too but i think we sort of we had that collective realization and then we bounced back out of it again and went oh okay on, on with on with everything as it was before um but i think that was an opportunity to go what matters do both these things matter does collective well-being and the economy matter? And I'd say, and I think most people would say, yeah, I think probably both. Both are good, right? Um, so also sensitivity is described as being like social glue. So it's like one of the traits which enables groups of people to cooperate successfully, to understand uh, nuanced differences and needs within an environment and allow groups of people to kind of achieve things which are greater than one person or one, one group might have achieved on their own. Um, there's a really great anthropologist who I interview in the book called Dr. Nikhil Chaudhari, who says that sensitivity has a really bad story at the moment and that that is in line with the economic system within which we live right now. But we haven't always been in this economic system that for like 95% of our lived human existence on the planet, we've been living outside of that system, mainly with some elements of it too. Um, and that the strategy of values that we currently have, which say that sensitivity is weak and bad and not useful and that bigger, better, tougher, stronger, 
more like machismo energy is more not to gender that but you know the values that sit within that he says that that would not that is in direct opposition to what would have been a useful story for 95 percent of our lived human history um which i think is really interesting as a exercise because what that made me realize is that like we've currently got an idea this culture that we're in right now says sensitivity is weak but it's in us for a reason we all have it in varying degrees it's just like the definition of it is means being a person like the very definition of sensitivity means bodily sensation and mental insight and everyone has those to varying degrees on some scale that's like what it means to be alive um but that it's an older story of use than we currently have a story for. Is, are the ways of managing it, are they... Because you've talked a lot about changes that require, I guess, like... I'm trying to avoid the, the term paradigm shift because it's been so ruined by co- corporate culture, but they require sort of large scale shifts of attitude sort of at the social level they can't be dealt with just individually because they're about what we as a society value they're about how we organize ourselves and how we set up systems so i I, i'm gonna i'll ask you about some potential social implicate changes in a second but i just for like selfish reasons i want to talk about the individual ones you know for what people can do now or how maybe what you came away with changes you could make in your own life because Mm. you know social change is often well it can be quick but it's often a bit slower or maybe out of not always within our total power to to change Mm. like being not just sensitive but highly sensitive is it's like it's it's painful right like it means that things that when they're things are difficult it means if you are in a caring job for example and do correct me if i'm wrong but like if you are say a nurse it means that when someone is suffering in your care you're going to feel that that suffering more acutely i mean would wouldn't it be easier to like what i'm basically saying hannah is like wouldn't it be easier to be a nurse if you just didn't give a shit like if you were just (laughs) like if, if like you were completely detached from your work uh, wouldn't that be easier than, you know, if you care about those patients, that's going to be rough and, and draining. So, like, how how do you sort of square that, I guess, that sensitivity, highly sensitivity is, might give you so much more, like, process, like, so much more information. You might be taking in more. Like, it, it, it seems to me, like, the way you were describing it as well, it seemed like it was almost like a a social blessing and an individual curse like for society great that we've got these little people who are acting as like alarm stations but they're like but when the canary dies in the coal mine so the miners get out it's not a great story for the canary you know like it's really useful it's like we can go we value these canaries hooray but they are still get sent down the coal mine to die and i just wonder how you it does seem like sensitive people are almost like kind of like the kind of like village shaman, but they're kind of cursed with, you know, the knowledge of the future and they're not very happy in themselves. 
is is the story as negative as I'm making out, or are there like really lovely things about being sensitive yeah. on just like an individual level? There are really lovely things about it, and also um, I spoke to somebody who did, who described it as like a not as not as a collective benefit. It's a selfish benefit too, because um, if you're looking at a resource and like say to say there's like load a load of breadcrumbs on the pavement and there's pigeons just to give it like a visual mainly what the pigeons will do is go like i want the bread i want the bread <laughs> like be pushing, <laughs> be pushing each other out of the way because that's what pigeons do like that they want food and they will like and you'll get slightly stronger ones slightly weaker ones slightly more sneaky ones but this person described like another strategy which slightly retells the story of like how we compete for things which is that there is a a more highly sensitive type of pigeon that like watches the resource and is like, I'm not gonna do anything yet. I'm just gonna just gonna figure out what's going on here. And then waits for like just the right opportunity. Goodness knows what that variable is. I don't know. All the other pigeons have got their backs turned. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. A strong gust of wind a crow flies through. I don't know. And then it's like, aha, I see just the right moment to like get that stuff for myself. So like it's also like hugely beneficial to that individual like it's it's described as being like a, a sort of sneaky selfish self-survival skill too so yeah it's good for the group but also it's like a legitimate strategy which like can yield really successful results so the individual stands to benefit from it as well um and the benefits of being highly sensitive for you you yourself is that you, well, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can just speak about research that I that I found out about is that if you can find a way to manage the empathic distress that you may feel, for instance, in a job that requires a lot of care, then you are very motivated to help alleviate other people's suffering. And of course, you get something out of that, right? Like to try to help another person sure you could define that as noble right but you whether you get something out of that i would say you do in the act of like trying you're trying to help someone else that's beneficial for you too right like you're like i feel better about myself i've tried to do something like one of the people that I interviewed said that um high empathic concern is linked to compassion and that is that that motivates us to act and that that is a resourceful state to be in that kind of like I, I notice this and that makes me want to behave in this way makes me want to take this action in the world and obviously we all define our lives in all kinds of ways about what gives us satisfaction and meaning in our lives but like for some people I suppose they might get something out of that for themselves like that feels like meaningful work to them Thank you, Hannah. That's really, those are fantastic answers to, are they? to that question. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I, mean, I do mean it. I'm not being sarcastic. It's really, it's, it's, uh, it was, that was great. And I, I wondered if you just on, just continuing the individual sort of side of it for a moment, I'm wondering if through your, you know, working on this book, um, you got any sense of sort of individual management strategies for 
that sounds like a very clinical way of talking about sensitivity but i i think mm-hmm. like yeah as you I say have. i mean you we've talked about it as a trait but as you say it's in everyone and i suppose it's also to a certain extent there's an element of sensitivity that is also a state that we can feel more or less sensitive yeah. in different situations on on different days yeah and maybe we're a little bit tired we're a little bit hungry or whatever but like these things or maybe we've just been through a very emotional experiences we can feel sort of more keyed into the world and and sensitive uh i i wonder yeah. and i think you know especially people listening who are writers who want to cultivate and celebrate sensitivity in themselves as like being a tool but also it can be a liability if you're thinking oh god what will people think my work's dreadful do people hate me am i what have you are there any individual sort of management strategies that you've come across that you think are particularly useful for people who are struggling with some of the downsides of yeah costs maybe of sensitivity i'd say costs would be a better sort of more neutral yes so I spoke to a really interesting lady, I'm just looking at the chapter in the book now, which is the chapter is called Sensitive Challenges, and I interviewed a really wonderful woman called Jess, who runs an organisation called the Psych Collective in Australia, and they put online like free resources um, which address all kinds of things, and some of them are about sensitivity and self-management, and her, their whole ethos is that you are your own responsibility like it's so it sounds really obvious right but like it's no one else's job to stop you feeling distressed by the world like that's your job if you want to do that like if you're feeling like it no, is Hannah, too I want much. someone to parent me like I don't know <laughs> don't tell me that no I like everyone is my pet pa- is my mum that's like everyone anyone who's like in a job like if I go to do a gig somewhere, who's running the venue? Right, they're my mum for the evening. No, you're my agent. True. You're my mum. Like, really am good. I? You've am done, I you, you're really good at skills. I know you are. Like you've you've done loads of that stuff too. But like it's like skilling yourself up, right? Like to to parent yourself essentially. Like uh, and so the main takeaway that that I realised through talking to everyone they've spoken to was you have to learn how to bear yourself. Like, it's no one else's job to be like, oh, you're feeling highly sensitive and uh, find these things really distressing. Let me fix that for you. I mean, maybe you'll luck out. Maybe that works as a strategy for someone. But it, but it also increases that sense of dependence because that's such a payoff. Like, if you go, yeah. oh, please, can you help me? And someone does a really good job of that. You don't, you don't get to learn it yourself no. that you could have handled it. And then you feel helpless and you feel like you slightly... And then that really makes that relationship blurry, right? Because you're like, I don't know if I love you or resent you. Yeah, because you you can't look up. Oh, I feel so unbelievably called out, but it's really (laughs) useful. Like, and what is that? What is... Just because sometimes I... Sometimes people talk about this and then they don't go like the final step and I I, I go, wow, that's really good. And then I realise when I come away... I don't know what was just discussed actually in, pra- well, in practical terms. What does it actually look like to well, be there for yourself to take responsibility? Knowing yourself, yourself, like learning. You're really, I've seen you do this. You're really good at this. I'm learning to get good at this, I hope. Which is like, so I may be, like I've noticed now what my tells are essentially. Like when am I, what behaviours 
mean I'm going over that hill into distress and then that will like become its own problematic cycle in itself and like I've learned what mine are now so mine are really uh, and they're not that unusual but they seem idiosyncratic at the time but I don't think they are unusual actually which are like I start to get really self-conscious about how I'm presenting physically in the world so like I've become very conscious about like my face and my body I don't really want to be looked at I have like this feeling where I'm like I don't want you to look at me like I just which is obviously slightly in contrast with like going on stage as part of your job but like I'll start... slightly yeah I, mean, <laughs> yeah. And I'll I can start see the like... conflict there <laughs> yeah like can you just, like a photographer came to my house the other day and I was having a home sensitive day and I said to him could we just do like neck up and he was like no <laughs> I was like, hmm, deeply problematic. And like, I just had to go, okay, well, I'm going to have to manage my own way through this because the ver- I have to do, you have to do it. Like, you can't always opt out of everything, right? You can't be like, no, I, I'm feeling highly sensitive, so I don't want to do that. Like, there are some things our lives require us to do just by being a functioning person. Um, but yeah, noticing what those distress behaviors are. So mine is like very self conscious. I start to become a little bit paranoid and be really touchy to things that people will say to me that normally I may laugh about, but like I'll be like, oh, that hurt, that hurt my, that really hurt my feelings in a way which is above and beyond where it might normally go. I will start to like, I want to rearrange the room. I mean, I love doing that anyway, it's one of my favourite hobbies, uh, but I'll like feel a really creeping dominant feeling to be like move the stuff move the stuff <laughs> and and so now I know and I'll become a bit meaner a bit sharper like when actually which is ironic because like I'm actually feeling softer I'm feeling so I sort of like start presenting as like nope <laughs> like don't do that or like I, I like have less capacity to have tolerance to deal with other people around me I just become a bit of a it's a cow. it's a weird paradox right like that or like it's an it's a contradiction that this idea of being sort of more sensitive can actually make somebody at difficult points be yeah. sort of less a less, less good sensitive. steward of someone else's feelings and yeah. sort of yeah absolutely and it's oh and then you shame yourself about that but anyway, yeah. like if i start to notice those things happening i go now i go oh yeah, I, I see what's happening. And then I've got a choice to try to get a little bit of control back, to like just change the variables in my situation much, a little. And sometimes you obviously don't get much choice in that. Like say you're in a work situation and like you're not picking anything that's in the environment particularly. But like I can choose, for example, whether to go and step outside for 60 seconds or mm. like make myself a cup of tea or like tell, say to myself in my mind, like you're all right. Or I can keep telling myself the story in my mind of like, oh my God, everything's terrible and I'm really distressed and I just don't want to be here. Like I can choose to sort of airlift yourself out a little bit. Like if, if that was my kid, it's like parenting yourself, right? Like if that was my kid and I saw that happening, um, that we have this conversation in my house all the time. Like when my daughter is upset about something, usually because she's done something that she knows she shouldn't do. Like she's very self-shaming. If she's done something she knows she shouldn't do, like... We've repeatedly said to her, please don't kneel up on that stool. It tips over backwards. And you've said it to her like five or six times. She keeps kneeling up on the stool. The stool tips over backwards. She whacks her head on the wall. The worst thing you can do in that moment is be like, I told you not to kneel up on that stool. When like, she's crying it's at so, you. It's so difficult to not... It's such a weird 
I know exactly what you mean. So difficult when a child hurts himself doing something that you're worried about to go, why did you do that? And it's <laughs> yeah, like, no, they're physically injured. Like, I don't think you need to step into that. They, they didn't enjoy <laughs> no. that. They didn't go, that was great. I want to do that yeah. again. Yeah, but you can go, I am going to have that conversation with them. But first, I'm going to soothe them. Like, I'm going to, like, re-ground them back to centre because right now they're distressed. And, like, you can do that with yourself. You can be like, okay... I can tell myself off right now for being distressed, but is that a useful thing to do? Or you could be like, you feel distressed. What are you going to do about it? Hopefully do those things and then go, right, what went wrong there? I, and sort of reassess it. And if that was your parent and your kid, you go like, once they've calmed down, and you've made sure their head's okay and you've soothed their feelings. And you go, I really need you to listen when I say, please don't kneel up on the stool because it tips over backwards and this might happen. And if you're doing that for yourself, I suppose it's the equivalent of going like, you find this type of social environment very challenging. What does that mean you need to do before you go into it? Does that mean you need to not come? Or does it mean you can be here if you've put in place a series of extra things? I remember seeing you do that. I remember, are you still there? You've gone really quiet. Yeah, I'm this, I'm, <laughs> I, know it's, I know it's an odd... <laughs> phenomenon whenever i listen to somebody they always worry like i've passed into that i've gone into standby mode they just like panic <laughs> i remember bumping into you at a festival and obviously festivals are highly social places where like we're encouraged to, like be with each other all the time and i didn't and... really understand why when i go to when i went to festivals i would feel I would like you often wanted to go back to your tent. What? Yeah, like why? <laughs> yeah. Are, uh, like, like what, Hannah? Like, why did I not know when? Like, is it not a clue when it's like Friday night at Glastonbury, and it gets to half past eight, and I have gone back to my tent and I'm lying in it, like, <laughs> like, like, well, and, and, and it's just like, oh, you know, I this is what I want to do. Yeah. I just thought I was, I just thought I was boring. Yeah, I thought I was, I, I thought I was boring and grumpy. Like... Because there's another proportion, right, who are out there who are really able to sustain that, that switched onness in a in a different kind of way. And so I would look at like mutual friends of ours. I'm sure you can think of like. Yeah, no, we're thinking of the like, same people. I know we are. Who just seemingly, I mean, I don't know. You don't even go really what's going on for someone, but seemingly just can drive through that continuous energy and just be yeah. on, 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 on. And like, for me, it's much more like I'm on and now I need to go away. I'm on and now I need to go away. And I remember bumping into you and you were walking back to your tent and I was like, I'm going to do this thing. And you were like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back here and have a bit of a chill out. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's what, that's self-awareness of like who you are and what you need. Like, Sorry, this sounds so hippie-ish. I mean, I despise that kind of... I don't. I mean, I'm a secret hippie, but, like, oh, there's a whole language of it which, like, makes me cringe. But also, like, it feels great. It feels so great to look after yourself and be like, yeah, I know what I need, thanks. Yeah, you know you know what? You know what? You didn't feel... I, I felt... I feel the same way, and I still have that reflexive cringe. But at the same time, I know I spent years being too cool to talk about it mm. and being, like fucking miserable like being yeah. absolutely miserable and it's like well am I just gonna sort of put on my big boy trousers and and, and talk about em emotions mm. and accept that some people might judge me or am I gonna go on 
just feeling really sad and snapping at people and not being happy. And I think I'm happy to have this conversation and talk about this stuff because the alternative is you waste a lot of your life, like you say, shaming yourself, hating yourself, trying to self-regulate through strategies that are doomed to failure. Mm. But at least no one's going to call you corny. Yeah. No, no one's going to yeah. catch you caring or trying. And the hardest part of that, I find, for me anyway, and I think for quite a few people, is <laughs> I cannot believe I'm about to say these words, but like, it's believing that you even deserve to look after yourself. Like, that's the hardest point. Like, if you're in a shame, if you deal in like shame internally, like, what you do is go, I'm feeling distressed. Well, you're an idiot for feeling distressed and you don't even deserve to look after yourself in that distress. Like, you got... Which makes you problematic, not just for yourself, but for everyone else. <laughs> you know, like, that's really... Well, because that, that little demon in your head is saying, look, I've only got your best interests at heart. It's there going, it's going, look, if I let you do this for yourself that's self-indulgence and it's going to lead down all sorts of dark roads so the re i'm only being mean to you it's <laughs> tough love like there yeah. is this thing of like going if i if i let you it's like why and i wonder if you got have the same feeling because i feel so ashamed of it but when i'm really hard on myself for my writing it's like it'll immediately go yeah but if you're not hard on yourself and you're writing like it 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 makes me really judgy about other people's writing because I'm going yeah, yeah. that person that person like obviously was very happy with them uh, happy in themselves but look it's made them write something that's a little bit sloppy and slapdash mm. and you wouldn't have done that and mm. that's because they that's because they don't push themselves hard enough not like you and it's just like yeah but I'm not writing anything like, yeah yeah exactly and, and, they, and I don't know about really you uncharitable. but I meet so many writers in workshops who found themselves in that exact cul-de-sac right who are just like I, they can't and can't seem to find their way out like they're just grappling with their own their own it's actually to do with your own psychology isn't it and like it's ironic because you're at a writing workshop which is seemingly about craft and actually sometimes the work is the internal psychology bit does that make sense yeah getting out of your own way like we tell stories all the time with each other and there is craft there but like so much of it is dependent on your ability to sit down and write without preemptively stopping yourself you know? yeah and sometimes that's painful right what i didn't anticipate with this book and do i feel embarrassed about yeah a bit a bit i think is that I ended up having to keep a box of tissues on my desk because there were some things that I was writing that I edited out, but that I had to write as part of the process. Like, you know that, you like have to like, there's like a corner you've got to write into um, just to see what's in there. And then you go, no, 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 we don't need to go in that corner. But like, you have to have written it. But there were moments of writing this where I was like, ah, oh, this is, yeah, I think I've done a lot of work to resolve a lot of this stuff, but some of it is really still like, Right on the edge of my of, uh, rawness of experience. And so, yeah, there were bits of the book where I just outrightly was sitting in my office on my own, having a, having a big old cry. But actually, that was weirdly healing. But I, like, didn't put those bits in the book. I don't think I did. Uh, no, I don't think I did. I mean, maybe, maybe there's still some in there. But, yeah. But I had such a nice time writing the book. I mean, you've written books for years, and... 
I always looked at that and was like, that seems like a big mystery to me. Like I, and in some ways it still does, but I, I was like, wow, I don't even understand what that process entails or why anyone would want to do it, to be honest. But like, I just had the best time. <laughs> I'm like, really, I'm, I'm not surprised given your sort of 2 a.m. candle burning essay writing and, and how you described pushing up against a big question and trying to explore it because it sounds like writing a book of this nature and exploring something that a matters to you mm. and b doesn't have a simple one-line answer like it it, it, it it by its nature you just break it down into smaller more complicated questions yeah um and i think you've done a great job of that in the book i think it's like a really nice mm. mix of like your personal stories and then getting different sort of like bits of nuance and perspectives from people not all of whom as you've said like ag completely agree, agree with each other yeah um it, it, and i and i find that really scary because i Do you? feel but like you wrote fiction and fiction's the most scary thing i think I, I don't i don't know that that's i mean i think whatever i'm currently writing is the most scary thing that's the truth like <laughs> I, I just go and then you finish it and you forget and then you go Oh yeah, because it because it, when it's completed, it feels like a finished thing. But when you're doing it, I just I just feel like I don't. If anyone asks me what I'm what what I'm writing about, what it means, I've got no idea. I I'm, I can't sum it up. Otherwise, I wouldn't be writing a book. I'd just write one sentence. Yeah, yeah. There's that whole thing of like you write to find out what is this. Can I can I ask? I just want to sort of ask finish the thought that I was that that is just that can I ask about what needs to change or what you think would be useful to change on a so society level because we talked about talked really well about individual things and I, I'm, I'm thinking about whether there's cultural shifts that you think could make it well one make the world a nicer place to be for people who are um highly sensitive and more I guess like on a very cynical level that can help us exploit uh, the value and use uh, uh, the, the 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 good parts of of sensitivity more because it, it struck me like when you were talking about needing to sometimes you know being in a place and step out mm. that if you wouldn't need to smoke for example you wouldn't no, need to smoke exactly. in that party if there uh, you wouldn't need that alibi if there was it was normalised that someone would go. I, you know, I could, I could just, I could just use a decompress for five minutes. Like yeah. that was completely normal, but that would be a society level thing, not just like an individual thing. I wonder if you could talk about what you think a kind of society that was shifting towards. If there was a vibe shift, Hannah, that's the term mm. I'm going to use. Um, mm. What would that look like to to sort of make the world a better place for very sensitive people? Uh, well, I think it starts in the education system because that's the route through the tunnel through from to the world for most people. And I think that a lot of the skills which have been shown, I mean, as much as you can measure and predict what is going to be useful in an uncertain future, but the skills that are going to be useful to us are like resilience, the capacity to usefully question authority and understand when authority is important to follow, like to understand the difference between those two things, because they are different things. Not just like rebelliously going, oh, I disagree with everything, but going, um, is that the way we need to do that? Because is there a different way of doing that? Because we have a sort of like idea that to get through the education system, you absolutely have to 
accept the authority that is presented to you like the idea of like an absolute right and wrong answer the absolute like obeying your 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 like higher up the hierarchy of the system so like the understanding that there's different ways of navigating through that and and understanding that like for instance, our job economy is dramatically changing really, really fast. And so if I interview somebody in the book, he says um, that the, one of the job sectors is predicted to really dramatically have a rise in attention and amount of staff within it within the next, I don't think he gives it a time period, within the future, um, is the care sector. Because as like technology can do more and more of the jobs that a human being's brain and body is able to do the one of the qualities which kind of remains really uniquely human is empathy care and compassion yeah and <laughs> we don't have a system or a story which says that that so that's not in it's like vicariously in the education system like kids get taught to you know like don't push each other over like but we don't have an understanding that that might be useful in the job market that that might be a skill which you can learn so I think it's about understanding that like yeah we have sensitive people and we have people who are less sensitive or there's like a scale fine people can place themselves in that wherever they feel they are but more importantly what is this skill that we have available that is within all of us that we can learn to use like a muscle that is available to all of us just as we learn like to achieve to like compete to like, all these other skills that we learn so i think it's about like yeah changing the story by looking at like this is a useful skill i don't know if that makes any sense yeah it does absolutely yeah and yeah it does and i i i really i really really like that as i said i think i think it's yeah i think it's really interesting this idea of it you know being something that we can that we might want to that, that, that like you say we might have a sort of natural set point a bit you know some of us might be more naturally sensitive than others but it's like a trait that we can also cultivate and celebrate and then and find understand ways to better yeah. and like have better language for like better ways of financially rewarding people who are particularly good at it and people are just okay at it like that's a youthful direction to take and yeah, also things like, it just helps us cooperate better. Like, we don't, as I said earlier, we don't know how to solve some of the problems we're facing. Like, we don't know what to do about climate crisis, for example. Like, we've got lots of, like, international panels who come together and go, here's what I think, here's what I think. And, like, we know, historically we know that our best bet is cooperation between varied skill sets. Like, not one skill set being like, I know the way which is what we see in our leadership at the moment. The best bet is like multi-skilled groups who like have an understanding that their different skill sets have different roles in that and figuring out how to cooperate to get the best possible outcome. Like, I think that is our best bet. I really believe that. Like, but what we've got at the moment is uh, different levels of priority given to different traits. So different traits will be heard more loudly, given space within a group environment. So like, a, yeah, it's about the story, about like, no, these things are all useful. How do we get those to work together to get the best possible outcome for ourselves? Hannah, thank you so much for chatting to me about this. It's been, I've really, 
really in, enjoyed myself and uh, as much as you yeah. know I, 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 I hope we talked about uh, the sort of like uh, the caring about the audience's experience as well I do hope people listening have had a good time as well but I <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed it and uh, that's uh, what matters most to me because uh, <laughs> anyway um, if people want to so I'm going to put a link to uh, sensitive in the show notes if people want to uh, grab it but if people want to uh, find out more about uh, what you're up to and stuff where's the best place for them to look online online well I use Instagram a lot under the handle Hannah Janster, Hannah Janster. Yes, I okay. think about that. Um, but also, I've got a website which is just www.hannahjanewalker.co.uk. Although I'm, you know, really, I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at updating my website. No, no I, I literally <laughs> don't know a single person who updates their website or um, go. You know, how how often when you <laughs> read an author do you go? I must, I must go on their personal website. And, uh, <laughs> Oh no, but although I'm more likely nowadays, I don't really like this about myself, but I'm more likely to follow them on Instagram nowadays. I've given up on Twitter. I find it very boring. I've noticed you're very good at Twitter. I'm not good uh, at Twitter. I'm just use it a lot, Hannah, and I'm not. I'm not good at it. I just, I just go on it and 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 and, and just and monologue to the point where <laughs> people are worried about me and send me messages. Going, Tim, are you having? I just I, I'm a bit worried you're having like a manic, um, uh, uh, like a manic swing and stuff because you've been tweeting about oh God, Sa- Southeast Asian dictators and I'm like no, <laughs> I'm just odd. I'm just odd. Like I'm fine. I just have got no filter. I'm sorry. I like everyone else is is, is tweeting on the news of the day, and I'm like going. Do you want to know what Team Rocket and Pokemon, what their slogan is in different languages? Because it's quite, no, nobody does except me. That's like. Well, no, but isn't that what the internet's for? Like, I was thinking, I mean, I imagine we all have this thought. Like, I've seen so many memes which, like, explore this, but, like, wouldn't it be so much, wouldn't the internet be such a, well, would it? I suppose it'd be a more dangerous place in a way, and it's already a dangerous place, but, like, wouldn't it be so much more fulfilling, I suppose, if. There wasn't that filtered presentation of like, and now I need to talk in the language of this platform. And hmm. like, how do I get myself to be interesting over here? Because I recognize that this platform requires a different thing for me than this platform over here. Like, I really do like it when um, I can hear the voice of the of the person. And I think, yeah, I think that genuinely matches what they're thinking and feeling. And they just like, here you go. Do you know, I find it very tiring. Um, I find it very tiring, all those filtered self-presentation processes. It's exhausting. It's just like, come on. <laughs> what, what what are you? Like, show you. Stop it. Like, it's very dizzy. I find it very dizzying. And like, like I'm trying to get through these layers and I'm like, oh, I can't quite see you. And then <laughs> sometimes you, you get people who just talk on those platforms yeah, like they might chat in real life. And I always think, oh, that's very refreshing. And it makes you realise how little it's done, really. Yeah, and I think I, I, I think maybe there's just a, what they call the kind of like uncanny valley effect where like I just have, I sometimes feel a little bit weirded out because I know that that's not, and it seems really silly, it seems like a silly line to put, but I, I know that this isn't how the person talks. 
that it's like a, a it's a bit that they're doing for for socials mm-hmm. and i just feel a little bit like i'm talking to i'm encount- dealing with a robot and i find it slightly upsetting and frightening because it do you know what i mean it's like if you spoke do. to them and they just spoke in a kind of and their eyes were all glazed over and they gave you a really slick kind of hello tim how are you today it's yeah. great to see you also yeah. i have three shows coming up this week um and and yeah. you and you, and you just I, I just feel a little bit invasion of the body snatchers and it's not meaning to be mean about anyone i just i think i struggle unless anyone's being like completely literal with me then i i, I sometimes feel like there's something i'm missing or I do really admire people who've got real craft in that, though. Like, there's a few people I've seen tweet, and I'm like, they really know. Yeah. Like, they manage it. It's like a show. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, they do, they've really nailed it. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. So I think I'm probably more haphazard. I'm probably like, you know, the little gleeful part of me that, like, sees something, and I'm like, hee-hee. Like, I'll, maybe I'll tweet something about that. And, like, not everyone gets it, because we don't all think the same. And then I'll be like feel dejected because I'm like oh people didn't that, understand that's, what that's... I was talking about um okay or like I really hesitate now like I'm someone who rises to anger quite fast I'm going I'm trying I've been really working on that but like I try like you know I might be like and it's usually to do with seeing someone be phenomenally rude in a in a public sphere, like I'll feel enraged, for instance, if somebody, the, the woman behind the post office counter is like being awful to this international student over here or this elderly person, which is like real like savior mindset, isn't it? But like, I may not necessarily intervene in that scenario. I mean, I hope I would, but like, I'm much more likely to go on social media and be like, I just saw somebody. <laughs> which is the real help that that international student needed, I think. <laughs> exactly. Was, 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 so was, 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 was you upping your metrics for retweets? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and then afterwards, I'll feel deeply ashamed. I'll be like, oh, everyone's seen that I, ha- I get really angry sometimes and I better delete that now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, exa- and and oh I and I dear. and I think you're I think you are right in saying that some people are really good at it, and maybe the real thing is not that I crave authenticity, but I know I'm not very good at doing like proper good posts that are of value to people, and every time I try, I do fall into that. I sound like someone. I sound like a corporation trying to. I'll be like, <laughs> what's what's your favourite book? Comment below. No, you did like ask an interesting question the other day which really which do you remember i texted you about because i was like oh god do i do that and i was like oh that's actually a useful use of the space right which was that you said what was it you asked you said something about non-fiction books and fact checking yeah and you were like where's the responsibility with that sit is it with the publisher should it be like something that independently the writers are like paying for to have done and to be honest thought had never occurred to me and i was like and it so that freaked me out because i was like oh my god <laughs> fact checking i i believed what the people told me um and then i was like i better just check with tim that he wasn't talking about my book i, I wasn't mean, talking i wasn't i wasn't i wasn't talking about your book i was subtweeting someone else and <laughs> I, I i feel bad about it because i i i, no, I, I try not it. to be i try i you know i i, I think it's it's weird i made a I, I put a tweet out about a particular 
uh, writer stroke storyteller. And then the other day, they just, they private messaged me and said, I am a real person, by the way, and I just want you to know that. And I don't recognize the descriptions. Yeah, but you know what? They were right. No, you know what? They were right. Like, I can have problems with the work. I can criticize the work. I think that's fine to go, this book, this podcast, whatever, I think it was completely inaccurate. And I think this point was wrong and I think it was irresponsible to release it but as soon as you start talking about someone's character who I yeah, don't know yeah. personally I think that's not fair and I think do you remember right I got caught out on that do you remember no uh, I won't name the organization I was working at because it makes it really obvious but I used to work for an organization uh mi5 MI5. Uh, it was Ministry of Defence. No, it wasn't. Uh, it was after I graduated. It was an arts organisation. And I, yeah, wasn't yet in that, that period where I realised that anyone would bother to read anything I was writing and was using a writer's website under what I thought was an anonymous name. But obviously it wasn't. It's like really close to my real name. And I wrote this poem just like in a process of time where I was making a lot of poems, casually put it on the internet, included the person's real name. It's an incredibly unusual name. And in the poem was talking about the fact that their son had died. And used that information really casually as if it didn't land somewhere because I never thought anyone would Read it, but I'm not sure even that justifies it. Do you know what I mean? I just don't know what the thought process was. To be honest, I didn't think. I just didn't think. <laughs> I just didn't think. And then I got an email saying, I found this. That was a unbearably painful experience for me in my life. I can't, I cannot even imagine how unbearably painful. Now I'm a parent, I'm like, oh, you know, awful. And uh, I thought writers were supposed to be nice people. And I was completely with them up until that point. And I was like, writers are not all nice people. I know loads of them. They are not all nice. They are not all nice people. Um, uh, but really hesitate now before I try. I mean, I'm sure I'll mess up again. We all do. But like, I try and think, hmm. Mm. <laughs> what am I taking? Where does that land? Hopefully, uh, when we make mistakes, we can come away from them with a little bit more compassion for other people when they make theirs, I hope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was so shocked. It was like I'd been slapped, deservedly. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh. I, guess, I, guess, I, guess, I guess, you know, we sometimes don't realise the impact of what we write and we feel like it would almost be arrogant to presume it would have any impact and then I did this pod <laughs> once on this podcast I joke I jokingly did an intro where I implied that I'd that I punched someone and not and like did you not, name them not, no no I no no like an imagined person but like it, I told an anecdote that I thought was obviously a joke about someone being rude about people who listen to this podcast and I punched the person <laughs> and then they were like on the floor and they weren't moving and then like I ran away and I didn't know what had happened to them but I and several people wrote to just sort of like apparently say that person sounds like they were really rude and I think you did the right thing and I was like oh no 
Like, I thought it was a joke. Like, you can't leave someone for dead, like, having... You can't just punch someone for disagreeing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, people listen to this and maybe sometimes take what I say to heart. I've got to, like, even if I think no one would take me seriously, I've got to be a bit more responsible. Anyway, look, Hannah, thank you so Sorry, much for yeah, speaking to me. On. Thank you for having me. And, thank um, you. Um, everyone listening to uh, today's episode, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.